Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Please be advised that Gen X This Is Why contains adult language. To be fair, Tom Hanks was on Apollo 13, and he's coming home. Hi, and welcome to Gen X This Is Why Time Capsule, where we re-examine the sometimes bizarre and often scarring events from our shared childhood. My name is Amy, and I'm a proud Gen Xer born in 1977. And I'm her sister, Jenny, born in 1974. Today, we're going to talk about Challenger, The Final Flight. Jen? A 2020 Netflix original, this is a four-part docuseries on the 1986 Challenger space shuttle disaster that unpacks an indelible moment for generations of Americans. This is produced by J.J. Abrams. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it it actually was super well done. That explains why it's so well done. Super well done. Yep, 100%. Okay, so Jenny, I want to open today with some memories of that day, like just what we remember as kids. So I'll go first because I don't remember a lot because I was nine. I was was eight years old. I was going to turn nine that September. And I was in third grade. And, you know, memory is fuzzy. So I'm just going to tell you what I remember. I don't know how accurate it is. I was, I was eight. So I remember they took us, ironically, I went to Neil Armstrong Elementary School and they took us to the commons area. And I remember being in there, but I don't think they had it on. That's weird that they wouldn't have it on. They gathered us, but I don't, I don't remember seeing it. Maybe I just didn't care enough to watch the screen. You know what I mean? Because like when you're eight and someone's like, oh, this big thing is happening. You're like, oh, whatever. I'm playing Dr. Dude. He's like, what's the spaceship? (laughs) So shut up. What's the rocket? So what I do remember is very quickly the rumor spread that it had exploded. And one of our first grade teachers was absent that day and we thought she was on the show. Oh, my God. Wow. That just shows you how small our world is at eight years old. Yeah. Yep. Like, oh, a teacher died on the shuttle. It must be a teacher in my immediate world. Right, right. These are, te- these are the teachers. And then yeah. I remember mom picking me up and she was crying because you were skiing, which I don't understand I know. that correlation. <laughs> I know. And she, mom was just really upset, like all day about it, was really upset about it. So, so go ahead and tell your story. So I was in sixth grade. I was 11. Um, I would have turned 12 that July. And I was in English class. And I, I can see my teacher in my mind. I can't remember her name. Was it Miss Greco? No. Um, no, I had her in like fourth grade or something. I was yeah. at I was in junior high. I was in a different school. Right, right. So right. I was at North. I was at North. Um 
I was down the hill from you. Yeah. And uh, we we were watching it. We had it on. We were watching it. Hmm. And um, the the thing is, and they talk about this a lot in the docu series, is we didn't know what we were supposed to see, right? Like right. You, you have an idea of what happens. Like we had talked, like we had talked about this in science class. Like our science teachers were all excited about this, and we had talked about how the you know like the boosters take it up and then they separate. So we knew something would come off the the shuttle. Like we had never seen a launch before, but we knew you know, like from talking about it in science, like kind of what happens. So we're watching it and you don't, we didn't know what was happening. Like we didn't, you know what I mean? Like we didn't know what we're supposed to see, but then you could see our teacher, I think started to realize that something was not right. And I think it was when that fallout, like the stuff started to fall down, like the, like the small things started to yeah, fall down, start to break apart. Yeah. And I think that she realized something was wrong and she, she like kind of startled and quickly shot off the TV. And, uh, hmm. we didn't, we didn't even talk about it, which is so weird. Of course we didn't talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Which is so weird. And I feel like, I don't remember what happened in class. I don't remember if anyone asked questions. Like, I just know we didn't talk about, it. like, we didn't have a talk about it. I don't know. What happened? So, I know she left the room and then I don't, she came back fairly quickly and I don't know. She must've been talking to other teachers. I don't know what happened. What correlation did that have with you going skiing? So it was the night of my first ski trip. So I had joined the ski team or ski club or what a ski club. It was not a team. And <laughs> we were going skiing that night. And it's weird because I feel like somehow I had a conversation with mom and she was upset, but I don't know how that would have happened. Like, did I call her on a payphone? Like, I don't know. Well, you know what I mean? North like, this was not- close. Did you come home after school and then she took you back no. down to get the bus? No, we left we right, after, right after, school. after school. Yeah. Because we even left like a little early and we would get on the bus and go. I, I don't feel, know. I don't know. Like, maybe that's something that screwed up in my memory. But, you know, like I knew she was worried about it. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know what she thought was going to happen. I think, I think she was just really upset and just. Right. You know, As a parent, you just. You know, like you just get nervous about it. Yeah, but you just get nervous. Yeah, you know what I mean. I get it. Like I was doing something new, doing something new and dangerous. Yeah, and maybe you know, especially if Graham had her ear, she probably felt like it was. That's true. true. It was some weird karmic day. But it was just so. It was like upsetting and scary, and like no one talked to us about it. No. Like in school, like it was very weird. So the way that we're going to do this is we're going to start talking about episode one. Um, We'll go through each of the episodes, not super in depth, more top level thoughts. And just talk about, you know, the things we noticed and interesting facts. I will say this, Jenny, we cannot research lightly. (laughs) I mean, I don't feel like I researched enough, though, either. I feel like I researched lightly. I feel like I could go down the rabbit hole, though. That's what I'm saying. Like there's so much. And so I feel much. like I'm, I'm just relying on the series, which is so well researched and so well done. Which is so. the point of Time Capsule. The yes. Time Capsule yep. is going to be we are going to watch shows, dramatic depictions, or documentaries about events that sort of that resonated or happened within the Gen X yeah. upbringing. So we are going to talk about the series. And, of course, we'll have some research off of it, maybe. But our main purpose here is to review the media about the event and not to be the source of information for you 
on the channel. We are not the source of truth on this. Not the source of truth. We are not the source of anything. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Jenny, why don't we talk about what happens in episode one? Um, So it opens with, it opens pretty interesting because it opens with the teacher wheeling a cart, an AV cart into a classroom. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember the AV cart. I was like, this is... (laughs) That's what we were watching it on. And... So we see the explosion happen. Everybody now, by now has seen that footage. We know it very well. I showed it to my daughters for the first time tonight, and they they didn't really know what they were looking at. Yeah, yeah. Same thing, right? So I hadn't seen that footage of the families. Like it just hooked you immediately. Like it was so upsetting. Like like what? It's just such raw emotion. We get in like later on in the series, they revisit that moment, and. Yeah. It, there's so much about that that was just handled so fucking badly. Once you become a parent, it's hard to not see things through that lens. Mm-hmm. So when I saw Krista McCall's parents there, yeah, I was like, that was rough. Yeah. That was rough. Because they had to have known something bad had happened, which we'll talk about later. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so go ahead. So the series kind of starts with the beginning of the space shuttle program. So um, what you know, what people thought about the shuttle. So Nixon started the space shuttle program and I, these are my notes, like based on what I watched in the series and what I know about it. Um, it was really an attempt to like normalize and commercialize space travel. Yeah. So they, they really wanted to like, you know, this is a space truck. Like it wasn't a space bus. Like I think a lot of people think it was all about bringing like large groups of people to space or colonizing space. Like it wasn't about that. Like that would be a that would be, you know, a later thing around that. But they talked about it as a truck to be able to bring payloads into space. Yes. So, And I listened to this podcast called You're Wrong About. Did you listen to this? I did. It was good. It's the episode yeah. on the Challenger disaster. It came out January 3rd, 2019. So they did, they did their own they, research. Kudos to they them. They did their own research. <laughs> and one of the hosts talked about they were subcontracting a lot of the cargo bins out to private companies, renting them out to private companies to all their satellites and stuff up to space. So yeah, they really wanted it to be normalized. They wanted it to be, to become profitable, to become profitable. Cause it's, you know, at this time, NASA is a government agency. Essentially it's extremely not profitable. It's a cost center at this point. It's R and D, right? Like they wanted to commercialize this. Yeah, they wanted to run 60 missions in a year. Yep. So they they thought of it as like, you know, they had an emphasis on it's a space truck. It will take things into space. We will build things in space. And to be fair, it did. Like they launched a ton of satellites that later became critical for GPS and all these other things. So like it, it did do that. But, you know, like that, you know, and the fact that it landed like a plane, I think that this conflates this conflation of like rocket and commercial airline gave the impression that space travel had become very routine and safe. And and it really had not like it definitely had not. And like, I don't think that was intentional because like an engineer wouldn't think that way. Like an engineer is just trying to solve the problem. Right. An engineer is like, what's the best way? Because what they want to do is make make it more sustainable and less expensive and reuse the pieces where with the Apollo, you know, like they lost that whole rocket every time they launched right. extremely expensive, like right. they couldn't reuse it. So they wanted something they could reuse. So engineers solved it as like, we should be able to land this thing like a plane, right? Like yes. so the rocket it takes off with is gone. 
they salvage some of the, the rocket boosters and they reuse those. They re they, um, they reuse those, but this was, you know, I don't think like engineers you did that intentionally, but I think that like NASA and like the government and like marketing people, the marketing, like, we can, we can use this. Yeah. So one of, <laughs> like, the, this good one of the widows, actually, I think it's our girl, June Love says her. that the marketing people at NASA had created this spin where yeah. it would be just another another shuttle launch, no big deal. It's as safe as air flight. And like the fact that it's landing like a plane made it hard to not for people not to make that leap, right? Yes. Yeah. Like I go to space. Yeah, yeah, I launch off a rocket pad, but like, you know, they just land on a runway. It and it's just really far, far more dangerous than commercial airplanes. I did I will say there was some footage when they were what was the first shuttle? It was Columbia, right? Columbia so was the first. when they were bringing Columbia through the streets, I remember them doing that yeah. with space shuttles. Was, they would it, go it, through it was, the streets. Yep. It was massive. The thing is massive. Yeah, I think it weighed 250 million tons or something crazy. That That's probably a fake number. That's probably wrong. It weighed 11 billion tons. <laughs> you might as well just say that. Okay, so let's talk about Ronald Reagan for a second. Oh boy. He's problematic in many ways. For just this reason or for the extreme inequality he created in our country? Man, could he speak. He was convincing, and that was part of the problem. He was, they they called him something, the empathizer in in chief or something they were calling him on that podcast. He's a great communicator. He's a great communicator. He might have been. But he, you know, you hear his voiceover when they're like, you know talking about what the shuttle will mean to people and he's like we threw open our windows of our souls to the great country like it's just he speaks in metaphor totally 100 well and this i mean this was this whole thing was a big promise of a new future right like it it painted a picture of like this unbridled prosperity and like this you know these possibilities like even krista mcauliffe when she was picked she's like i'm gonna do lessons in space because the kids i'm teaching today might have grandchildren living in space Mm -hmm. like it was very like the shuttle was really iconic it was all over pop culture like nasa did those super shirts that i would love to have now how how badass would it be to have one of those vintage i know it'd be really cool yeah they really marketed the crap out of it and you know it was somebody said they interviewed somebody and they said it was it was the answer to the 70s, to the bitter pill of the 70s, right? So yeah. the 70s, yeah. you have Vietnam, you have race yeah. riots, you have inflation. inflation, you have a recession, you have the gas crisis, you have, think about all the shit that went down in the 70s. Yeah. They interviewed someone, Is that your information? Yes, they, they interviewed, interviewed someone. someone. <laughs> they interviewed a dude at the landing <laughs> or something. Then. They interviewed it a dude. It wasn't an important person. <laughs> guys, just so you know, I made a list and it says good guys and bad guys. Which I think you can argue there's no good guys in this, but go well, on. The whistleblowers are the good guys, but we'll talk about them. Um, but I, like I do, I think this was, you know, the eighties kind of moonshot. This yeah, was yeah, something literally, that we, literally and, and it's so fascinating because I'll get into this later when we talk about what this meant for our generation, but we don't have that anymore. Yep. We don't have something we're working on. I mean, except a cure for the pandemic we're currently in while we're recording this. Well, you have, we don't have that great promise of something. Well, we don't have it as a nation and a government. Like you have it in the private right. sector. You have like maniacs like Elon Musk, who I sure. love, but is a maniac and is sure. just like trying to do these crazy ass things. 
Yeah. Like it's moved into the private sector. The government gave up on it. Yes. Yep. hundred percent. All right. Next. So they need to recruit astronauts because they hadn't trained astronauts in like nine years at this point. So they need a fresh crop of astronauts and they decide to do like a huge diversity program and bring different other than what white men into Can we talk about this? So I'm watching the first, what, 20 minutes of this episode. And I'm like, everyone is an, is a white dude. Well, and everyone, every single person is a white dude. Do not be confused though. Everyone in charge still remains to be white. Still remains to be a white dude. A hundred percent. Which is part of the problem. They decide to do this diversity thing, which I was surprised by this. Me too. But they do it and they get 35 astronauts. Six are women and 29 are men, which, you know, the population was 51, 49 at that point. So, you know, they're, they're getting there. They're getting close. I have the quote. I have the quote from Walter Cronkite. (laughs) Oh yeah. 35 astronauts, six women, one Oriental, three blacks. Woof. Yeah. So that's it. Cronkite. Wow. And don't even get me started on Tom Brokaw, which we'll get to later. (laughs) Yeah. So this included the first female astronaut, Sally Ride. Yep. The first African-American astronaut had already flown in the 60s. That was Robert uh, Henry Lawrence Jr. Yeah. So the African-Americans on this class are not the first astronauts in space. Right. But um, the first Asian-American astronaut is on this team. And four of the Challenger crew are in this class. class. And that's Judy Resnick, whose only crime, according to Tom Brokaw, was being single. Can you believe that interview? Okay. So Tom Brokaw, we're going to put this in our Facebook group, the Mimi Bees. You need to see this. If I can get it under Amy's copyright laws. (laughs) This is fair game. This is news. Tom Brokaw says to Judy Resnick, oh, when you meet a man... And you tell him you're going to be an astronaut. Does he say you're too cute to be an astronaut, pretty lady? She has a PhD in engineering, people. And she goes, I tell them I'm an engineer. This is what he asks her. She has a PhD Mm -hmm. in engineering, and this is what he asks her. Yep. And the way they introduce her is she likes to run, blah, blah, blah. And she's single. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Because she's useless. Throw her out with the trash. Unbelievable. She can't get a man. I I like, I was like, like I, I could feel the steam rising up in my head during that. So interview. Judy Resnick is of the Challenger crew. She's in this class. Ron McNair, who I love, who I love, I love and him. I think might be your spirit animal, Jenny, because he's a saxophonist and a karate master. <laughs> when they said he was a karate master, I was like, this guy's going places. Yep, yep. And they tell this story about him, and I just want to talk about it for a second. He grew up in, I think it was rural South Carolina, and he could not check out a library book. Yes. They called the police when he tried to check out a library book. He was like a young kid at the time. Unfucking believable. Unfucking believable. That had to be the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. No, maybe the 50s. Um, Maybe the 50s. Yeah. It was probably the 50s. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So... That's where he's coming from. And then here he is. He's an MIT physicist. Yeah. Amazing. And he's he's going on the uh the amazing challenger. We also have Captain Dick Scobie, who's married to our girl June. 
Love her. Um, his son actually grew up to be a very decorated fighter pilot. And I was trying to find out if he's in Top Gun. <laughs> well, that's funny because they talk about the son a lot being a pilot. Cause like he was older, yeah. right? Like he was, yeah. He'd flown in the sixties and stuff, Dick. And he was, yes. He was like in his forties at this time or like 50 yep. maybe. Even. And like, Probably 15. I can't get into June, to June, but she loves that man still. I know. He's remarried, but she still loves oh, that Oh, really? Man. Is she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she is. Yeah. She was so cute with her. Am I spreading fake news? No, she might be. She was, I mean, you know, this was, God, like 30 years ago, over 30 years. Yeah. She was there with her little space shuttle pin on. She's so cute. And then um, the first Asian American, Ellison Anizuka, was there. And he was uh, born in Hawaii. He was a mission specialist, first Asian American to fly, and he was a research engineer, married to Lorna, and they had two daughters, and he was in the U.S. Air Force. He went to astronaut Rich Covey's house and was shucking some oysters. Oh, my God. And somebody came over to him and said, what did they say? Like, they said, are you? Oh, did Mrs. Covey hire you to, to, to shuck the oysters? Oh, my God. People. Don't say those things out loud. Don't don't think them. But if you think don't them, say them don't say them out loud. Oh my loud, god! Ever. But she. I mean, I'm not. I can't She's, say I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. But wow. So, I'm and he, that. being the humble genius that he is, is like, oh yeah, huh, or something like that. Yeah, he goes. I just come around and stay here and chuck the oysters. Yeah, like he said something like that, and then Rich goes over to the guy and is like, dude, that's a fucking astronaut. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Yeah. So, th- so those four people were in this class of 78 who they uh, lovingly called TFNG, which meant 35 new guys, but is a take on FNG, which is a military term, which Rich Covey, very like polite, dapper, older white gentleman says, it means fucking new guy. <laughs> And I love when like prim and proper people curse and you don't expect it because they just enunciate like fucking new guy. So that's what, so that's what that meant. So anyway, so, so this is the class that are going to fly the shuttles in the, but they have to go through two years of training and it is hell. And we get some, uh, Steve Miller band fly like an Eagle. Oh yeah. And I'm loving it. I hate this. You know, I, I have, I do too. But I'm I'm like all like geared up, like okay, I'm feeling the spirit. But how about the training? The training is so interesting. I thought it was crazy. Like they have to train for all these like water landings, so they just drop them like w- from a helicopter into the water and drag them along because like that's what would happen, right? Like if you hit it with a parachute, and, and they just like almost drown them. Then they put them. They do the zero g thing in a real plane, which is crazy. Totally want to do that someday. Yeah, yeah. I could never do that. They I can't just, even go on the fucking tilt-a-whirl. They just did all this, like, it's just intense, intense training. Yeah, well, they should. Yeah, no, they it makes total to. sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so while the astronauts are training, the space shuttle program, the space shuttle is being built, right? Like, so right. nine years it's being built. There's all these cost overruns and negotiations. And, like, we have to remember that this is the most complex machine ever built at this time, right? Like, this yeah. thing is super complicated we're at the edges of human engineering as that dude who's a reporter was saying like you're just you're oh, that's bill harwood he's <laughs> yeah. a reporter he's the cape canaveral bureau chief 
he had a long career at CBS and he was like the NASA correspondent. Sure. Okay. So that's who he was. No, he's okay, great. Well, I love him. Like I, I feel yeah, like I he gives a lot of good information. I love so, him. Well, he's a reporter. I know. And it's show, like, you could tell when you're talking to a reporter versus when they're interviewing an engineer. Yes. Like, <laughs> yep. hundred percent. So um, one of, you know, the, mo- the, the way they design the space shuttle is they're going to use solid rocket boosters to get this thing off the ground. Cause the, one of the problems with the shuttle is it's super heavy, right? Cause you want to be able to load stuff into it, right? Like they want to be able to like put a lot of cargo in it unlike what we did on the Apollo missions. Right. So they're like, it's super heavy. They got to get this thing off the ground. So they decide to use solid rocket boosters in, in addition to the general like rocket tank. They're fucking dangerous. They're super fucking dangerous. The refresh, the Russians refuse to use them on manned missions because once you light them, you can never unlight them. You can't stop them. They have to burn. They out. just burn. Yeah. And I think that the um, analogy that the hosts of that podcast I mentioned gave was oh, a good one. The Roman Catholic visual. Was it? No, no, no. She said, um, think of it like if you have a plastic water bottle and you cut the top and the bottom off. So you just have like that sleeve and you put a bunch of those sleeves together if you poured water in there, it would just spill out. So the solid rocket boosters were built in parts that were connected by O-rings right. in the joints. So in those joints between the water bottles, think of like them putting a big rubber band to seal it. Oh. And that's kind of how they were constructed. But there were two in case one failed. Right. Redundancies. Yeah. So that is what an SRB kind of looks like. And you're right. It's like a Roman candle. It just. Well, and they had to build them that way because there'd be no way to transport them if they no. were whole. Like ideally they'd be whole, but that's not yes. how we had to build them. So the government's not going to, you know, the government doesn't, we don't have like all these places that build all these things. So like they contract people. So they send out a request for a proposal. They, you know, get costs and everything and they, they work with contractors. So that's where. Morton Thiokol comes in. They are the contractor that builds the um, solid rocket booster. So, you know, this is complex. It's running long. It's fucking dangerous technology. It's finally done. And and one of the things that they pointed out in this podcast, too, again, let me just give them a shout out because I keep using their research. Just just shut this off and go listen to that. (laughs) It's called You're Wrong About. One of the things she talked about was when NASA was doing the Apollo mission, they were building the stuff. Yeah. So they knew yeah. how it worked and the intricacies. Yeah. And now we're in the era of the subcontractors, the government yeah. contracts. So there's high turnover at NASA because they don't pay very well anymore because a lot of the work is being done. Yeah. Outsourced. So so you have that kind of, you know, everything's kind of coming together. Yeah. To be the perfect storm. Well, they're running it more like a company and not like the government, like not, not like research and discover. Like it's, it's, it's being run like a corporation would be yes. run at that time. Like we're, you yep. know, things are different now, but the shuttle was the first time they ever used solid rocket boosters on a manned ship. Like, and I think the last time. If the Russians aren't doing it because it's Ooh, too, too I mean, risky. Russians. <laughs> I mean, Russians. <laughs> They're they're badass. They'll do anything, and they're not going to get on a ship. They're like, whoa, we're not going to get on a ship with solid roster boosters, rocket boosters. Are you nuts? Yeah. So they the so the shuttle's done. They're driving it down the street. 
They're parading it out. They're ready to. Are like, they driving it down the street or are they pulling it down the street? I They're can, towing it down the street. I can tell street. you how an airplane works. I don't know how the shuttle works. They tow it, I think, down the an street. An airplane, when you're on the ground, because I flew an airplane, mm-hmm. little one, but when you're on the ground, you don't use the steering wheel. That's for the air. You do everything with your feet, with the oh, pedals. Okay. We just lost half our audience. Okay. All right. So next. So I don't think they're driving it down the road. They're towing it down the road. So it's done. Right. So that's done. So they have four shuttles, Discovery, Atlantis, Challenger, and Columbia. Okay. Challenger is the lightest one. Like they built, you know, the later one, they built a little lighter. Yeah. They, they made some improvements on Challenger. And they do the first um, shuttle launches Discovery. In 1981? 81. Yep. So Robert Crippen is the first astronaut that lands the shuttle and he lands it in the California desert. And it is like, people are going crazy. They're people are going crazy it. there. It's like summer of love all over again. Like people are just ripping off their clothes and smoking yeah. weed yeah. for no reason. Yeah, There's <laughs> like, some dude with like a crazy colored clown wig on and a shirt. This is Jesus saves. Like this is real footage. I'm not making this up. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's crazy. And they get a ticker tape parade. Yeah. Yep. It's, yeah. it's, it's big a big deal. Stuff. Big deal. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, those guys went up there. There were two of them, right? The commander, yep. John Young, yep. and the pilot, Robert Crippen. Yep. They went up there not even knowing if this goddamn thing was going to fly. They didn't even know what was going to happen when they came back into the atmosphere because that was, nope. that's the hard, like the two hardest parts, obviously, are getting loose of our atmosphere, getting enough thrust to get out of the atmosphere, and then like, being able to handle the burn coming back into the atmosphere. And they didn't even know what was going to happen. Like it was kind of amazing, really. Yeah. They had no idea. It was, it was a real, that is where somebody, they interviewed somebody in that crowd, I think, who was talking about the seventies and how they needed this. You know, it's kind of like in 2021 when we're able to, like, go outdoors without a mask on and touch other people. We're going to be, like, crying in the California desert. People will be interviewing us. We'll be like, we needed this. Yeah, but they were landing a space shuttle. I'm going to be having a margarita next to someone. I'm going to be a euphoric. <laughs> it's not going to take a space shuttle for me to do exactly. this. I'm going to be able to see someone smile at me for the first time <laughs> in, like, six months. I'm just going to be like, yeah. I'm going to take my trash out without a mask on and I'll be excited. <laughs> so in 1984, Discovery's made in flight. So the Columbia was 81. Discovery, they launched in 84. A fire starts when they're launching. So they're starting to have problems with these things. Yes. The, the eighth mission, there's a lightning storm. Lightning hits the pad and damages it. You know, there's all these kind of crazy things. They start to have all these little, little problems, but like it's a constant thing. So it's NASA was getting very cocky because they hadn't lost anyone. There had been 25 years of space flight and no one died. They had, they had close calls. Like they had, was it Apollo 13? That, Apollo 13. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That was a close Tom Hanks, call. But Tom Hanks, to be fair, Tom Hanks was on Apollo 13. Yeah. So they were. And he's coming home. Yeah. So, but they were able to save those astronauts, right? Like yeah. even though the mission was a disaster and failed, like they saved those astronauts. So they were having a lot of like, one-off problems through the Apollo program and stuff like nothing major, but what started to happen through the challenger or through the um, shuttle program was they started to see a persistent problem. And that was with the solid rocket boosters O-rings. Yeah. In 1985 with the launch of discovery in 85, they started to see 
Like they had been picking up. What happens is every time that thing launches, the, the solid rocket boosters fall back down into the ocean. They retrieve them. They inspect them. And they refurbish them for future use. Which saved them a ton of money. A ton of money, right? Mm-hmm. But every time they brought them back, the engineers inspected them and, you know, like took granular data on what was happening. Jenny's favorite catchphrase. <laughs> and they started, they started noticing that there was soot, like where the O-ring was and that it was starting, there was like signs of an early failure, like that gas could have been escaping into and catching on fire and like leaving a little bit of this soot behind. So like it wasn't a failure, but there was stress on the O-ring. They started- and the O-rings were a quarter of an inch thick and they were 35 feet long. Yeah. Yep. Super wow. weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like they're, you know, and they're, they're flexible to an extent. They, they made, they form the seal. So after the discovery launch in January of 1985, they start to see damage to the second O-ring. So there's two O-rings. It's what's called a redundancy. So like these are things that you have in engineering, you have it in computer engineering, all of it. Like there's a backup, right? There's some kind of redundancy if the first fails. So if that mm-hmm. first O-ring fails, the second one will protect will protect the rocket. So they start to see this corrosion in the second O-ring. So, and this had been, this correlates loosely with the coldest launch ever. Right. So Florida was having unusually cold weather at that time. So they form a task force. Were we there on vacation? Because we seem to, you know, whenever we go to Florida, it's the coldest ever on record. I thought about that because it (laughs) it was, right? But no, that was like 95 because I was 21 and I could drink and Amy Mm -hmm. couldn't. And Mm -hmm. I was not drinking with my parents and Amy had to stay in the hotel Mm -hmm. with my grandmother the whole trip. And we couldn't find, there wasn't a hat or glove to be found. (laughs) Nope, because it's Florida. (laughs) So they form a task force and they started like really tracking the data. And they, they, you know, they were seeing a loose correlation between colder launches and O-ring issues, but there wasn't like enough data yet to really say they, they couldn't really make a strong correlation because well they could they, they had a, they had a loose correlation what they couldn't do is they could not predict when the failure would be right and one of the anomalies that was happening is the most damage they saw to the second o-ring happened during the warmest launch right but it had been cold in the days before that right so yep. what they were, you know, the the temperature that they're correlating to is the temperature at launch, not necessarily yep. the temperature the O-ring would be at. What they, the data that, that NASA ended up saying was missing was at what temperature will this fail? And they, they couldn't tell you that. Like they, they, yeah. they couldn't make that prediction at that point. They couldn't yeah. say like at 32 degrees, this fails. So can I give you a multiple choice quiz? Okay. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. When NASA saw that they were starting to have problems with the shuttle, did they A, immediately inform the public and ground all shuttles? Did they B, not do anything? Uh, B? <laughs> B! I mean, I don't... <laughs> you expected a C, but I'm, improv is not my strength, but so I couldn't sad, find it. The sad part is, I think it is C. They didn't do nothing, right? They Because there's a paper trail that they did stuff. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which says they knew. Like, if they had done nothing, you might be able to argue they didn't know. They soldiered on, is what yes. I meant. Yes. Because yes. they, they knew. They knew this was... Yeah. And they had, like, this was a persistent problem, which is yes. always something you want to deal with. Like, if, if it was, like, a different problem every time, then that's just, mm-hmm. you know, that's the risk of space flight. Yeah, like, clearly something was going on with the O-rings. 
Yep. So in this part and into episode two, they start to have like a lot of um, interviews with the Morton Thiokol employees. Mm -hmm. So we have Brian Russell, who's an engineer. Brian Russell is a systems reliability engineer. You fucking listen to your SREs. You listen to them always. And he's a good dude. He was like, I was against this whole thing. We have the same role in technology. It's either site reliability engineer or system rely. They do err on the side of overly cautious sometimes. But like if they say shit's going to fail, it absolutely is going to fail. A hundred percent. And his boss is Bob Ebling, who's the manager of the SRB program. This is another thing. I see a lot of inflated... Like, you know, top heavy. There is so, administration. so many levels of management. It's kind of insane. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of insane. So Bob Ebeling is dead. He died pretty recently. He died in like 2016. Yeah. But his daughter is the one giving the interview. And I feel like there's some revisionist history going on. Like, according to Leslie Ebeling, her father just sat around and cried about the, the humanity of this. All the time. She's always like, my dad was so worried. He was crying. Christmas morning, he was crying. He was crying at dinner. Like, you know, I'm, I'm being a little melodramatic here. A little hyperbolic. But she was really laying it on thick that her dad. Well, I think, like, yeah. I mean, maybe she was over-exaggerating. But I, I read an interview with him in 2016 from NPR. And I, this haunted him. Like they it did haunt him. They actually interviewed him. NPR interviewed him like three weeks after it happened and he was anonymous though. He didn't want to give his name or say like everyone was afraid of getting fired. Like everyone's towing the company line in these days. Right. So they, they interviewed him and like, he was haunted by this. Like he went into a severe depression after this. Like, I don't think that that's untrue. Like he feels like he was responsible for the death of seven people. Okay. I felt like she was laying it on a little thick. Well, I was confused at first when I first start watching the, the uh, documentary because I'm like, how is she speaking so clearly about this? Cause I thought she was a kid when this was oh. happening. Oh no. And I'm like, Oh, she worked with them. She was an adult. Yes. She was at yes. the company. Oh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> okay. we, have, so then we have Alan McDonald. He's the director of the SRB program. Yes. And Joe Kilminster, who yeah. is his boss. He's and he the was vice the, so not only do you have a manager and a director, you have a vice president. He's the vice president of the space program. And then Bob Lund is the vice president of engineering. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much like overhead. Jen, guess who wasn't haunted by the death of seven people? Bob Lund. No, Dr. William Lucas and Larry Malloy. Well, and that's who they laid it on pretty much. Right. So they were the directors of the Marshall space flight center, which was a part of NASA. That was the Marshall space center is the, the leg of NASA that was managing the, uh, uh, Thigal. So they were, they were managing this vendor. There's a lot of inflated costs here. Like you want to talk about costs. There's your cost. Wow. Yeah. Like, I want to see that organizational chart because it's probably insane. And all these people have, well, I had the organizational chart of Thiokol, which was not as bad as NASA's. NASA's like, I mean, there's 18,000 layers there. And all these guys, everyone has a pension. Everyone has, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where does episode one end, Jenny? I think it ends right about, right about there. Like they, they, they realize so, the O-ring problem. They know there's an ongoing problem. We kind of have these things converging. 
Yeah. So then the next episode starts with Krista McAuliffe being selected. Okay. So episode two is called Help. Yep. And it starts with, you know, now we have who's going to fly on this shuttle, right? And we have more hubris from NASA because they decide we're going to stick pedestrians on the shuttle. So since they launched Columbia in 1981, the public has started to lose interest in the shuttle program. And because it's like funded by the government, like they need... They need the political interest. They need the public's interest. Like they, they need, need the buy-in. They need the support. They need the buy-in. So what they decide to do to like spruce up the image and like get people interested again is put a civilian on a plane. Put an everyday person on the plane. We're gonna send just your neighbor to space. But they're trying to decide on who this is. Like they want it to be a non-scientist, a non-astronaut. So they had some ideas of who this regular person could be. And the ideas were Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Yep. Big Bird. Big Bird. <laughs> bird. You heard that right. Big Bird, which is not a real person. Big Bird. <laughs> they're going to put that costume in a spacesuit? Like, what was their plan there? <laughs> what? This is not the fucking rodeo, people. John Denver. Okay. Great. I would have been okay with John Denver. A quote-unquote great poet or a quote-unquote great artist? Um, Both. These were the ideas. So then Reagan. Oh, I thought you in. meant is John Denver a great poet or a great no, artist? I'm like meant, both. No, I meant neither of those things. Okay. Reagan steps in and says, it's going to be a teacher. I want it to be a teacher. He announces it's going to be a teacher, which I actually thought was a good idea. I did too. I, I liked that idea. I thought it was a good idea. Hey, we all know teachers make shit. So if they need to moonlight as an astronaut. <laughs> but I, I thought it was the right message, right? Like it was the yeah, right, it was a yeah. good thing. So he decides and Reagan decides and he not, he announces that it'll be a teacher and that there's going to be a contest to, to get picked. So they get 11,000 applications or so. It was a lot. They get a lot of applications. And then they end up picking. And would you have applied? A hundred percent. Not me. I would keep, that, that, keep these tree trunks on the ground. I wrote in my notes for when I was watching the Discovery first launch. I was like, I would totally do this. That looks awesome. Like, could you no. imagine what that feels like? No. That, that rocket under you? Like, that's insane. Nope. So Reagan does. Okay. So they get 11,000 applications. They pick two teachers from each state. I don't know if they're trying to make the Senate here or what they're trying to do, but they whittle it down to a hundred and then it, somehow it gets whittled down to 10 who go to, to go to NASA and like hang out. And like, I don't know. They, they do, do they all do the training? No. Well, no. What they do is they have three questions you get asked. Yes. Right. Then they have a swimsuit competition no, and then a talent competition. But they did at, like, they have something at NASA where they decide from the 10 who they're going to pick. It really was the three questions. And yeah, because there was the surprise question. There was two yes. they got ahead of time. And the surprise question was, describe your philosophy of living. Wow. Whatever. Okay. So <laughs> so they pick, Krista gets picked, and Barbara Morgan is picked as her backup. And they loved Krista. Yeah. Like, yep. reports say that there she was really the star, like the yep. standout choice. And I think that that's what they wanted, right? Like they wanted somebody who's going to be the personality of this and to really engage the public and to like, they needed a spokesperson and Krista was it. So, so let me just say real quick. Uh, Krista was born in 1948 and her name is actually Sharon, Sharon Krista Corrigan. And she started going by S Krista 
and then eventually lost the S. And I can really relate to people who change the spellings of their first names. Yeah, except she changed her whole name and not the spelling of it to some random thing that people keep misspelling. She married Stephen McAuliffe, who she had met in high school. And he is actually now, he was in law school when they were young and married. But he's actually now a federal judge in New Hampshire. And he remarried in 1992. Uh, she was a teacher, at, a social studies teacher at Concord High School in New Hampshire. And she had two children, Scott, who was nine, and Caroline, who was six at the time of her, her death. And her sister is in the documentary. Yep. So, and so is Barbara Morgan, her backup. So Barbara, so both Krista and Barbara train because if for some reason Krista gets sick or because like if they get sick, she's her understudy. Yeah, if they get sick, they can't like even if they have a, a sniffly cold, they can't walk. Yeah, they can't okay. go on the space shuttle. So um, Barbara's her backup in case something happens to her. Um, they can train. They both they both are trained up. So they go through an abbreviated version of the training that the astronauts did. Like, I think she said it was like three weeks or four weeks. No, no, no. She had, they lived there for four months. Oh, four months. Okay. Yes. And she, Barbara tells the story about them going to find apartments Mm -hmm. and they found apartments and Barbara was like, you know, kind of getting oriented and putting her stuff away. Krista had already baked a goddamn apple pie and brought it over to her. So that's the kind of person she was. Barbara was rearranging and arranging and rearranging her closet. This is what I would have been doing. (laughs) I would not have been baking an apple pie, but I would have been trying to find one somewhere. (laughs) So these guys get picked for the mission. NASA astronauts were actually really against this. Like the Harden astronauts, I think, uh, what's his name? Rick Scobie. Rick Scobie talks about it. Yeah that um, they were against it because they just felt like it was too dangerous for civilians. Like it's not, this is not, you know, this is, this is, this is serious stuff. Like this is not a commercial airplane. I mean, these were people who, you know, even though they trained to be astronauts for like two years, they really trained their whole lives because most yes. of them were pilots. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, actually that, cl- or, that or, or had something to do. Yeah. In the yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They weren't plus, teachers. Plus it's something that, like, I don't even think it's that, right? Because some of those uh, people in the class of 1980, like somebody was a surgeon or 1978, sorry, was a do- was a doctor and a surgeon, but they signed up for this, right? Like, it's kind of like joining the military. Like, they signed yeah. up to be an astronaut and they're taking on the risks where they felt like this was just sold. These teachers, like, hey, do this cool thing. And like, they weren't, you know what I mean? They didn't understand the risk of what they were doing. Yes. Where the astronauts yes. clearly did. Like they clearly knew what they were getting themselves into. I just want to mention the last two people of the, the crew. Cause I didn't talk about them yet. Okay. So Greg Jarvis was an engineer and he was the payload specialist, which was what Jenny. So payload specialist. So because the shuttle takes up all this gear and all these things, which is called the payload, it could be all kinds of different things. So the payload specialist is the person that has subject matter expertise about the thing they're taking. So like if okay. it, if it's a warhead, like a nuclear warhead, <laughs> hopefully it's not, but say it was, they would have somebody from the military on there. So like if they were taking up a bunch of board games, would Milton Bradley be a, the payload specialist? Sure. Yeah. Like if they were just going to throw Settlers of Catan out, in the, out into space. <laughs> yeah. But like satellites, you know, if they're communication satellites, things like that. So whatever company is putting their thing on it, they have a specialist of, you know, like how to, how to take care of things that. And how to set up and, you know, deal with the payload. So they might not necessarily know about space. Like they might not be 
an astronaut, but they're usually some kind of scientist or researcher or something like that. Yeah. So he was married to Marsha and she has remarried since and they had no children and he was from New York. Then we had Captain Mike Smith. He was a Vietnam vet, a seasoned pilot. He was awarded rank of captain in the military, I think, after his death, posthumously, which is one of my favorite words. And he was married to Jane Smith Wilcott, and they had three children. Well, this was his first flight in a rocket, though, wasn't it? Yes. Yep. So I just wanted to, you know, we talked about the others. I wanted to make sure we have everybody. So one of the people they interview who was present during the launch was Peter Billingsley, the kid from A Christmas Story. <laughs> was such a, when they were interviewing him, like he didn't, they didn't give us that fact right away. And he's, you know, he's in his forties now. And I'm oh, like, I know him immediately. Oh my God, he looks familiar. Well, you know how I am with recognizing people. I'm like, God, he's so familiar. I'm like, well, how do I know this guy? Like he's super familiar. And then he says, I was a child actor and they show the little, Thing him going down the slide is like I'll shoot you'll shoot your eye out. I'm like Ralphie. <laughs> so Ralphie's there. <laughs> okay. So first they're gonna put Big Bird on the shuttle, and next Ralphie's there. Yeah. So, so Ralphie's there, and he says something disturbing. He says in this episode that they were talking. He was like part of the what was he the young the young astronauts young astronaut association or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. He said they were going to put kids on the shuttle. Yeah. Like, that's the direction it was yep. going. Yeah. Now, we don't have any credible NASA source to back that up. Nope. Just Ralphie. Just guys. Ralphie. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the hearsay from Ralphie, but this is the word on the street. <laughs> word on the street is Ralphie was going up but in this is This was the plan. Like, they wanted to make this routine and reliable. Like, they, they wanted this thing to pay for itself. They wanted, like to a month to launch when they had yeah. had nine launches in all of 1985. So like, yeah, and part, part of the problem here is, you know, they were under intense pressure from the government. Yes. To, to really keep get this. Yep. To keep this schedule and get those 60 launches. Yep. And they, so they were, they were all, they, they the other civilians they put on to help boost this whole, like to get buy-in were senators. So they threw some senators on there, like Senator Jake Garn, they put on, they bumped. So Greg Jarvis was supposed to fly on earlier flights. He got bumped because they put um, Congress and Jake Garn. And then they put Bill Nelson on and, and Greg Jarvis gets bumped again and ends up on Challenger. And Greg's wife, Marsha, not happy about that. Not happy about that. Yeah. Nope. Another thing I really liked is they had uh, Krista McAuliffe's sister, like we mentioned. Her name is Lisa Bristol. And she was actually reading from her journals yeah. at the time yeah. that this happened. So I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, so Krista gets selected. Where do we go from here? So Richard Cook was okay. is a NASA analyst. He was asked to look into this reoccurring problem with the O-rings. Mm-hmm. Now they're like, Okay, we're using the word reoccurring problem. We're tracking something. So so he was asked to look into this. As we were talking about they're they're track they're reviewing the data on the retrieval of all these SRBs and like what mm-hmm. shape the O-rings are in. And they they have a problem. Like they definitely have a problem. The engineers a problem. the engineers at Thiokol are freaking out 
they're like, this, this is going to fail. Like it's, Mm -hmm. and a memo gets sent from Bob Ebling to Alan McDonald and basically says, help. This is a red flag. This is going to fail. Like red flag, red flag, red flag. So yeah, like if you're going to talk about the good guys in this, good, maybe a little spineless towards the end, but yes, like this is a red flag. We know this is going to fail. I'll just read you directly what I have. Rich Cook, the problem is getting worse. The problem, there's now a problem with the redundant feature. And NASA has a a policy that if the redundant feature fails, there's no launch. Like they're like back to the drawing board. If, if you have redundant, failing, right? right? So that's like a thing. Malloy, is that his name? Bad guy. Bad guy. Super bad guy. He is a piece of garbage. And he's like, you know, he's like, if you don't get keep your schedule, you don't keep your budget. So he's pushing on this schedule, pushing. Yeah, pushing. and let me just let me just clarify. What makes him a bad guy is he ha- he has not recognized his no response, no remorse, no nothing recognized. Like they actually get him and Doctor Lucas to talk on camera. Yeah, and they just have no remorse. They have they take no responsibility. They have no remorse. Nothing. Yeah, everyone else did. They had, they were basically like, I didn't do anything wrong. And they were right. the two that they said did the thing, like blamed ultimately. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the flight safety is compromised. They know it's compromised, that it could be a catastrophic engine, like event. The engineers have warned this. This is in writing. They know they're, they are, they are at risk for a catastrophic event. Lucas said, like he, NASA knows that that needs to be redesigned. And they thought that this was in process at Thylacol. They're like, oh, they're figuring this out. Right. But like to redesign this thing, they would have to stop the shuttle program for probably like a year or two. Yeah. yeah. No one wanted to ground the fleet. That was the problem is nobody wanted to be that person that was like, we need to we ground can't. the fleet. So nobody yeah. makes that decision. No, but they all know that if the ring fails, it's going to blow up. And they all know that it's going to fail. I would have leaked this to the press. Well, Richard Cook eventually does. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he does. But that, um, I would have done it before this happened, though. Right, right. <laughs> like, he, he did it after the fact. But that's, so that's where we are. They all know it's going to, like, it's an inevitability. It's not if, it's when. Okay, so we're going to end here. On our next pod, we're going to cover episodes three and four. And we'll look at the actual explosion, and then uh, episode four cover, covers the fallout. So thanks for listening to Gen X. This is why time capsule. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, you could check out our regular, regular series, which is little house on the prairie, which we do every Monday. We release a new episode, mm-hmm. right, Jenny? Yep. And we also have a bunch of movies that we've covered in Gen X. This is why blockbusters. So if you subscribe to Gen X, this is why you'll get all of this content and blockbusters. We've done a bunch of stuff, dirty dancing, karate kid, Top Gun, Halloween, Heathers, Nightmare on Elm Street, Howard the Duck. Some we liked, some we'd rather forget ever existed. (laughs) All right. So thanks and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Gen X This Is Why. To best support us, please consider leaving a five-star review. All five-star reviews help listeners find us and helps us connect with new listeners. For more information on our Facebook page or our Facebook group or our Instagram feed, please visit us at genxthisiswhy.com. That's gen, letter X, this is Y, spell out the Y, dot com. Hope to see you soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.